Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair with part 12 of David Cayley's series, The Education Debates. Parents have a well-established right to educate their children in accordance with their own convictions. Their prerogative is recognised in the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other international covenants and conventions. But what does this right consist in when it comes to public education? Does it mean that, within reason, tax monies should follow students to any school they or their parents choose? Or does it only mean that families are free to leave the public system and pay private school fees on top of their education taxes, if they like? This question of choice in public education is what retired education professor Mark Holmes calls the most important conceptual issue facing pluralist democracies today. In tonight's programme, we'll look at both the pros and the cons. Should the public monopoly in education be broken or maintained? Part 12 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Until recently, public school systems have been able to enunciate clear purposes. Upper Canada's School Act of 1850 instructed teachers in these words. The teacher, it said, should exert his best endeavours to impress upon the minds of all children committed to his care the principles of piety, justice, and a sacred regard to truth. The Act went on to enumerate other virtues, including love of country, industry, frugality, chastity, and temperance. Subsequent versions of the purpose of public schooling moved the emphasis from Christian virtue to citizenship. In 1915, the Ontario Supreme Court asserted that the paramount purpose of public education was to make children into loyal and efficient subjects and citizens of the state. Public education, the court said, should comprise one comprehensive and symmetrical system embracing everyone from the Minister of Education to the youngest infant in kindergarten. Today, public education seems to possess no single commanding purpose on which most of the citizens could agree. Instilling Christian virtue would still seem a good purpose to some, the production of loyal and efficient citizens to others. But what would appeal to all? When Ontario introduced its common curriculum in 1993, the accompanying document from the Ministry of Education presented the task of students as one of adapting to changing attitudes and suggested that this required a climate of flexibility and understanding in which the students can develop values that they themselves consider relevant for the life they envisage. Education, in other words, has no collective purpose, but is rather a matrix within which students develop their own purposes. Uncertainty about the purpose of education is not necessarily a bad thing. It might even be the beginning of wisdom. But it inevitably raises a question. If philosophies of education differ, why maintain a monolithic, one-size-fits-all system of public education? During the last generation, this has become an urgent political question, and a number of countries have moved to expand publicly financed educational choices. So far, amongst the English-speaking countries, Canada has probably been the most cautious in this regard. But we too have an active movement pressing for an end to the public school monopoly. One of its leaders has been Mark Holmes, a former teacher, 
high school principal and director of education, who later became a professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Now retired, he's also the author of a number of books, including Educational Policy for the Pluralist Democracy. As his career in public education suggests, he was at one time a firm believer in the ideal of the common public school. But this ideal, he says, is now outmoded. I believe that the common school has failed and that it is no longer a viable idea in contemporary Canada. And so what we have is a public school which is nominally a common school, but which has no commitment to anything very much because it's torn apart in so many different directions. So I describe it as a low-doctrine school. It does have a doctrine. It believes in nonviolence, for example, tolerance. And there's a belief in consideration for the other person, the golden rule. But that's it. That's all there is. And the things that I think are paramount in education, in true education, are not really there. My best example is truth. In my own, my own personal values, truth, in the broadest possible sense of the word, is the end of life, but it's also the end of education, because education should be towards life's purposes. And so I see truth as becoming at best on the back burner, and in many cases just disappearing altogether in terms of schools' goals and activities and their functions, being replaced by all kinds of what uh, Alastair McIntyre, the philosopher, uh, talks about as uh, emotivism, passing preferences which are not connected, which, um, you know, the, the flavor of the day, uh, environmentalism, and all, all the other things that, uh, that come. They may be important, but they're not part of the end of life, as it were. So I see that disappearing from the, from the school, so I see the common school as really being dead and not amenable to resuscitation. And the feeble efforts at resuscitation are at best semi-successful, where a, a very energetic principal, a very energetic staff can get together and add on a few things to these three basics of, of the uh, low-doctrine school. And perhaps it'll last for the, while the principal's there for five years and then die when the principal moves on. And so instead I see that for true education to survive, there must be what I've called uh, fortress monasteries. There must be schools which live within the Babel of our times, but which are still devoted to such things as truth, and which stand as islands but because they are islands and because they are scorned, derided, perhaps ignored by people outside, they will then become communities because they will have bounds around them and lots of people who oppose them, which will make them stronger and help to maintain these fundamental ideas, which I think are central to Western civilization which I think is something which is worth preserving, which I don't want to see destroyed. And then all the other people who don't want those things, who want to chase the emotivisms, who want to chase mammon, 
who want to chase God in a very narrow sense may, free, may be free to do it. Not because I'm giving them permission, obviously I don't have permission, but because the state should give them permission. The state should say, it's okay for you to have the kind of education you want within certain limits. School choice, as Mark Holmes sees it, is a way of breaking up the stalemate that he calls the low-doctrine school. This stalemate is a product of the deep ideological differences that now cut across Western societies. A substantial minority of the population, perhaps 25%, remains seriously religious and continues in the once prevailing opinion that education requires a religious framework. The secularized majority fears religion as a divisive and potentially authoritarian influence in education. Philosophies of education vary across a spectrum that runs all the way from the free school to a traditional liberal arts curriculum, and people nearly come to blows over questions like how to teach reading. Moral questions are equally contentious. Some would approve of the school I recently read about where sex education took the form of a student costumed as a condom, passing out free contraceptives in the halls. Others would be appalled. These differences, in Holmes' view, create a condition of mutual inhibition in which no one is ever really satisfied. He thinks that the answer is to allow real differentiation to occur under public auspices. My proposal is, in essence, to give parents the right which they should have under the uh, United Nations Charter to determine the kind of education they want for their children. So what I'm suggesting is that there be essentially free choice within certain limits. There are mechanical kind of limits, such as one can't suddenly build a new school for 23 people who say they want this. So there's that kind of limit, and that's very easy to deal with because essentially what you're saying is you're providing so much per head for children, depending on the kind of uh, pedagogical program that they need. I would see poor children, for example, as carrying more dollars with them than affluent children because uh, typically they are harder to teach in a number of different ways. I would see disabled children very obviously as requiring many more dollars. So I'm not talking about a voucher system where you just say, well, there's $5,000 per student, do what you want with it or anything like that. I'm just saying that that children would carry government grants with them to the school that they wanted to go to. And those schools could be organized according and would be organized according to the wishes of parents. It would still be a standard public school and any parent who wanted it would have the right to send their child and free transportation and everything else with it to what I call an area public school. And at the same time, they would have the right not to send their child to that school. So there would be schools, for example, there would be Catholic schools, which of course there are already, but there would also be um, Protestant schools, there might be um, a Seventh-day Adventist school, But there would be limits, very important limits. One is freedom of access. I think this is very, very important stipulation because otherwise you could have a school with some small religious sect and perhaps the father or the mother would uh, commit some indiscretion 
they'd be banned from membership of the sect and the children would be expelled from school. Now, to have this being done in a publicly funded school, I find abhorrent. A public school must be accessible. But at the same time, a public school should be allowed to provide the kind of culture that the parents want. That, that as I say, has been the essential ground for choice. And what, by what mechanisms do you see this happening? Well, I think that the establishment, particularly in Ontario, but generally speaking in Canada, the educational establishment I'm talking about here, is so powerful. The unions, the school boards, the uh, departments or ministries of education, the faculties of education, they are so much part of a group think that breaking up that establishment and providing genuine choice rather than just the approved choices of the establishment is going to be incredibly difficult. So I think we have to have multiple ways of providing access. The most obvious one is to have alternative schools within the system. And to me, that is, this is the most desirable. Unfortunately, what we know is that uh, well, even in school boards that have provided alternative schools, they've turned them on and turned them off like, like a tap. There's no right to it. So another very important thing that I think one has to allow is for schools to be funded directly by the province where a group of parents want to opt out from the local board and, and attend their own school of their own choice. This is a, a kind of safety valve to prevent the school boards acting in an arbitrary and authoritarian way, which most school boards do. Uh, generally, school boards don't let parents have the kind of schools that they want. Mark Holmes' idea of diversifying public education according to the liking of parents alarms many supporters of the present system. One common criticism is that many of the schools eligible for public support in a regime of choice would be organized on religious or, more broadly, ideological lines, and that students in these schools would therefore be subject to indoctrination. Holmes has two responses. The first is to suggest that socialization in the present system is already a kind of indoctrination. The second is to stipulate that in the regime of choice that he envisages, the state would make the student's freedom of inquiry a condition of public support. Children have a right of access to knowledge. This comes back to my thing about truth. Supposing one is in um, a Baptist school. Obviously, a Baptist school is going to teach the de a denominational view of Protestant Christianity. That's why it's there. But what they should not be allowed, they should not be able to deny children access to other avenues of truth beyond their own. Now, what this comes down to in practice is, I believe, that it should be a regulation that every school have a comprehensive school library or resource center. For example, in a high school, I would certainly expect there to be books about evolution. And if, they, and if anything, any mention of evolution had been banned from the school library, I'd say, wait a minute, you don't get one penny of public money. Not because I think evolution is necessarily 100% true, but 
It is obviously one very important avenue of truth and believed very strongly by many people, and it is something to which people should have access. In the same way, I think one, there, sh there should be a Koran in every library and there should be a Bible in every, in, in, in every library. People should have access to all the major aspects of truth. So to me, this is very important. Another concern about school choice is that it will aggravate social inequality. The arguments that support this criticism are, first, that expanded choice will favor those with the wealth and education to make smart choices, and second, that it will drain talent and initiative out of schools in poorer areas. Holmes does not accept these arguments. It is true, he says, that the poor, by definition, lack power and knowledge, but they do not necessarily lack high aspirations for their children, and mobilizing the aspirations of parents is really the essence of his plan to reform education. The common school no longer works, he says, because society has become a babel, a confusion of tongues, where citizens lack a common ground on which to erect anything but the most rudimentary and inhibited of educational institutions. But within this decadent condition, there exists a saving grace, the existence of communities that would like to revitalize the education of their children. This energy can only work, he thinks, if these communities are allowed to create schools according to their particular genius. No universal prescription can save education, Holmes argues finally. But choice provides a way of magnifying whatever popular energies do exist for its renewal. We are living in a kind of dark age in that the dominant forces in our society are individualistic and materialistic and that the powerful cultural influences in our society have a kind of lowest common denominator. I do believe all that. And I certainly don't believe that schools can be better than society. I don't think that schools are going to transform society. I don't think that's possible. Society is more powerful than the schools. But what I do see is that the schools are adopting, not by choice, but are de facto adopting this lowest common denominator of our culture. And so they are making it difficult or impossible for parents who have higher aspirations to bring those aspirations to bear on their children so that instead of being helped by the school, they are hindered by the school. And so I see that the school would at least help reflect the better aspects of society, uh, which at the moment it doesn't. It probably screens out the very lowest of society, but it settles for a very low common denominator. And so this is where I see some optimism. What schools can do is capture some of the essence of the good things in society and help parents reflect those things. And they can pass them to some kids who don't have those in strength from their parents because their parents recognize them as good things and say, yes, I want those good things. For my, for, for, for my children. And so I, th I think that in, in that sense, 
we cannot transform society, but we will be able to respect the sincere good wishes of parents and not dumb them down. of full school choice, students would be able to take their share of education monies with them to approved private schools, or in the case of homeschooling, to keep that money at home. At the moment, several provinces partially cover student fees at private schools. BC, for example, pays up to half of private school fees, under a formula that pays more to poor schools than to elite ones, and that sets standards for schools receiving grants. Quebec, Manitoba, and Alberta also partially fund private schools, with Alberta giving grants for homeschooling as well. Ontario, at the moment, funds only Catholic schools, a policy which the Canadian Jewish Congress and the Ontario Alliance of Christian Schools have challenged in court. The case was decided in 1996, when the Supreme Court ruled that Ontario had no constitutional obligation to fund religious schools, though it was free to do so if it liked. Adrian Goldemond is the executive director of the Ontario Alliance of Christian Schools, which was one of the plaintiffs in this case. His organization represents 73 schools that teach within the broadly Calvinist tradition that is usually called the Reformed Church in Europe and the Presbyterian or Congregationalist Church in English-speaking countries. It's a tradition, Goldemond says, that has always tried to bring Christian teaching to bear on civic society. Essentially, the view is that uh, the gospel has a number of imperatives in it which uh, apply to all of life, uh, not just to the so-called ecclesiastical sphere or whatever that may be, and that uh, consequently to be a, a Christian with integrity, so to speak, uh, you need to work out the meaning of the gospel in other social spheres in life, and then education, of course, is a very important one. Or another way of putting that is that uh, the sort of the biblical givens about humanity and, uh, and the universe and so forth are important in teaching children about life and what their role of it is and how they should see it and so forth. Religion, in this view, is part of public life and not just a private vocation. Education is one of the spheres in which a specifically Christian perspective demands expression, and this requires independent schools. Such schools, in Adrian Goldemann's opinion, deserve public support. When the Alliance of Christian Schools appeared before the Supreme Court, it based its argument for this support on Section 15 of the Charter of Rights, which guarantees citizens equality before the law and freedom from discrimination on the basis of such things as religion. A Christian school, on these grounds, should be neither more nor less worthy of public support than an art school, a vocational school, a French immersion school, or any other option which families could reasonably favor for their children. The decision, according to Goldemond, should belong to the community and not to the state. It's our view that um, the system should be decentralized, and that our uh, view of the ideal school is the community-based school. Not quite the little red schoolhouse, but a good medium-sized school is uh, what the research shows is the most effective um, learning medium for, uh, for students 
who like to be known, right? Who like to know where they are and who like to have relationships with the teachers. Uh, who like to know what uh, what it is that they're trying to teach and why and whether it's the parents support it, right? Whether it's relevant and so forth, all those questions, which you can answer in detail in a smaller school. You can't answer them in detail in a large school because you've got uh, too much of a mix. Uh, you know, you've got a staff selection problem, you've got a parent selection problem, and so you go for the lowest common denominator, which is what the public school has always done. Sort of the industrial model, <clears throat> which is now obsolete. And so we think that um, if the society changes enough to get away from the industrial model in business, hopefully it will do the same thing in education and go back to the community-based schools and allow parent groups and uh, other groups to, to configure you know, how they want it, uh, how they want it run. And um, all of that should be supported by the state as a matter of principle to say, all right, uh, you know, the state should back off controlling the system and instead say, look, here's the norms we have for education in our society, and if you meet them, fine. If you don't, you know, we have a problem. Restricting the state's role in education to setting standards and distributing tax monies would give much wider scope to families and communities. This is as it should be, according to Adrian Guldemond, since these are natural societies, while the state is artificial. Learning communities, he has written, should grow naturally on the basis of a shared morality. Without such a basis, he says, education is inevitably an imposition on the student. There's two fundamental things here. First, we think it's bad for the state to try to control the mind formation of the student. And the second one is uh, we believe that the um, family is uh, sort of a fundamental building block in society and that it should not be undercut by state institutions, which, in, uh, which are currently doing it because the school, in fact, takes over the role of explaining what's good and bad in society. So it's one, on the one hand, there's a democratic principle involved here, which is that in a true democracy, the state does not impose an official ideology. And the second one is simply the place of the family. You can't have a view of how important a family is when you take the, when you force the child out at age three and subject it to you know its main waking hours to an outside uh, position, which in fact turns out to be a clear doctrine at this point. I mean, if you want to know whether there's a doctrine here, just look at the sex education courses in the public schools. They used to be taught as though um, we have sex education because we're just teaching biology. That used to be the position in the 1970s. Uh, today, no one's saying that. Today, they're, they're taught because we want to teach young people how to behave sexually. The important point about this teaching for Goldemond is not its content, but the fact that it constitutes a normative position, a clear doctrine, as he says. Indeed, he believes that all serious teaching embodies a doctrine and is therefore literally indoctrination, but that the word indoctrination has very often been applied only to teachings outside the current orthodoxy. So teaching safe sex to youngsters is not seen as indoctrination, while teaching that sex belongs only within marriage is. The distinction, Goldemann says, is thin, artificial, and unsustainable. I think the public policy is based on the perception that there is some sort of possible neutral position out there. Okay, that was the original argument. And um, it, I think it died in reality somewhere in the 70s when people started realizing that all education is a value-based operation 
And that the question is not whether you have values or whether you don't. The question is which values are you, in fact, promoting? So given the fact that that's the reality in education, our view is that the public umbrella ought to be extended to cover all viable options. And rather than saying, we're going to teach, say, uh, you know, three or four options in the public school system and exclude a couple for the private school system, um, in a democracy, our view is that all viable good education options should be in the public umbrella. And whether it's a, uh, you know, a secular perspective or a Christian or there are, you know, there's, a, there's a number of other possibilities, that's really not relevant from the state's point of view. If this view were accepted and the charade of neutrality ended, Goldemont says, teaching in the public schools would improve. Good teaching often arises from commitment to a particular view of a subject. But such commitment is inhibited in settings where the size of the school, the heterogeneity of the students, or the competing visions that now exist of the curriculum dampen such passions and lead to more colorless teaching. If real philosophical diversity were allowed, he says, teachers would be freer to develop their own orientations. I think it would uh, give communities a chance to work out coherent and consistent educational environments without political interference. The problem is, uh, with the current system, uh, we have a great many good teachers in the system. Uh, it's the system that has been a break uh, on much of you know, the good teaching in there. And by the way, that would also create a fantastic research base. Most people don't think of that. Um, whatever little research there is on education in Canada has been sort of skewed by the fact that it's all happening in legally controlled public schools. Well, if we were to sort of delegalize the system, um, there would be much more actual educational experimentation possible. And then you could have uh, good debates about what's the best way to learn and what's the best way to, uh, you know, teach or whatever. Adrian Goldemann sees no need for public education to be as controlled as it currently is. And he sees the struggle to free education from state control as analogous to earlier struggles of the Calvinist churches for an end to the privilege of established churches. The current public education system, to this way of thinking, is an established secular church. It's monolithic, it possesses an exclusive jurisdiction, it deploys a large clerical bureaucracy administering a prescribed ritual which is believed to be uniquely efficacious, and it claims to possess the keys to heaven. Goldemann thinks that this system ought now to be disestablished in favor of a more diverse and heterogeneous design, and that his tradition of Christianity once again has a part to play in this overthrow. Adrian Goldemond would like to see every child's share of the education budget follow him to the school of his family's choice, so long as the school met the state's educational standards. Another approach to school choice is the charter school. These are public schools operating under a charter granted by some competent public authority, which sets out their particular character. Like other public schools, they must be non-sectarian and without fees or admission requirements but they are otherwise free to follow their own purposes, so long as they fulfill the commitments made in their charters. The idea is to combine the freedom and flexibility of a private school 
with the accessibility and accountability of a public school. In Canada, so far, only Alberta allows charter schools. It currently has 10. But the idea has been tried more widely in the United States and other English-speaking countries. In the U.S., more than half the states now have charter legislation. A thousand charter schools have been created, and President Clinton, who is an enthusiastic supporter of the idea, has called for the creation of 3,000 within the next five years. Joe Nathan is a former teacher who now directs the Center for School Change at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs. He participated in the movement that made Minnesota the first American state to adopt charter legislation in 1991, and he's the author of Charter Schools, Creating Hope and Opportunity for American Education. The schools he describes in his book are extremely diverse. They are located in both rich communities and poor communities, in regular school buildings and in improvised quarters in an old grocery store or post office. Their founders are parents, teachers, popular organizations, and in a few cases, private companies. The curricula they follow are extremely varied. Here's one that Joe Nathan described to me. There's a school in a rural part of Minnesota, uh, Minnesota New Country School, that um, uh, is located in a little town named Lesseur. Some of your listeners may remember there used to be ads for the Valley of the Jolly Green Giant. They sold peas and corn and, and so on. And this is that little town, Lesseur, and the group of teachers have organized a school where there's one computer for every two youngsters, and the youngsters have become so sophisticated technologically with the computers that they literally help local businesses to create websites on the Internet. This is a school where the, they see the world as a, as a place in, to learn, where they see the building only as a headquarters. And these are youngsters who went out into the community because all of them are required to demonstrate that they know how to provide service to the community and to the school as a part of their graduation. And the youngsters discovered as a part of a water quality testing project that there were hundreds of frogs that had three or five legs rather than the more typical four. So they called the Pollution Control Agency in the state, which said, there, there, that's nice, kids, and didn't seem very interested. So they called their legislator, who said, well, let's look into this some more. They contacted somebody at the university who said, yes, this really is a serious problem. They testified at the legislature, and now the legislature has allocated thousands of dollars, and people all over North America have discovered that there are many, many of these frogs that, that have some genetic defects, and they've discovered that there really is a serious problem. And this is a problem first identified, as far as we know, in the United States by these youngsters at this charter school in rural Minnesota. Another innovative charter is located an hour's drive from Lesur in St. Paul, Minnesota, where the City Academy is housed in an underused city recreation building. This school accepts only dropouts and combines its academic curriculum with neighborhood renovation projects. Other charters follow more traditional academic paths. This diversity, says to Joe Nathan, that the charter movement is populist rather than being inherently of the left or of the right. This populist character, he says, is reflected in the changing attitude of teacher unions towards charters. Once strongly opposed, a number of teachers' unions have now become supporters of the movement as they have seen their own teachers successfully start charter schools. In a similar way, Nathan says, the record of charter schools has begun to change the minds of other critics, who at first argued that expanded school choice would favor only the better off. Uh, we have found that the youngsters attending many of these charter public schools um, tend to represent 
families from that are every bit as low income as the average. In fact, in many states, including here in Minnesota, the youngsters who attend charter public schools are much more likely to be from low-income families, are much more likely to be from communities of color, um, are much more likely to be children who have special education problems, are much more likely to be children who do not speak English at home than other public schools in the state. And that's true of a number of states. It's not true of every state, and it really does depend on the details of the program, but many of the advocates of these kinds of programs are, in this country at least, advocates of low-income people and are themselves parents, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles of low-income people. So our experience is that it's clearly not the elite. And in many cases, these charter schools have been started by organizations that work with low-income families. Um, the Tejano Center, for example, in uh, Houston is a community service organization in a very low-income section of uh, Houston. And it is these organizations themselves who are starting the school so that um, parents tend to have a lot more faith in many cases in community organizations in low-income communities than they do, frankly, in the schools. So our experience uh, has not been that these schools are elite institutions. Charter school legislation in the United States now varies considerably from state to state. In some, only local school boards can grant charters. In others, state boards of education, universities, or even, in some cases, municipalities can grant them. Whether charters are exempt from the provisions of the prevailing union contract is another key difference. The current distribution of charter schools reflects these differences. In the six states with the strongest laws, there are 226 charter schools. In the six with the weakest, there are 16. Alberta's legislation in these terms has generally been regarded as weak by those who would like to see this idea take root in Canada. Education writer Andrew Nikiforik, for example, criticizes the Alberta law for requiring charter schools to be innovative rather than simply good and for failing to provide any support for the schools once established. Joe Nathan sees the charter school as an essentially democratic institution, a popular check on the power of educational bureaucracies. It gives those who want to create schools an alternative and the existence of an alternative, he says finally, gets the attention of the public school establishment. In Rochester, Minnesota, home of the Mayo Clinic, a group of parents um, had pleaded with the school district for years to offer a Montessori public school, and the district had refused, saying that they believed in equal educational opportunity. What they really meant was identical educational opportunity. All of the elementary schools in this were the same. Well, the parents finally created a private Montessori school and were very frustrated. And some parents couldn't afford to send their kids to a private school and so continued to agitate and, and receive for a period of about eight or nine years the same response. No, we're going to offer the same kinds of programs to all the children. That's equal educational opportunity. Um, then the charter law passed and it allowed people after a year or two to go to public university to get permission to create a school. So they didn't just have to go to the local school board. And so the parents went back to the school committee and said, well, you know, we've been talking with you. Now we are here to tell you that we'd really like to work with you to create a Montessori public school in Rochester, Minnesota. But if you won't do it, then we're going uh, to ask a university for permission to create this. And the school committee just said, no, we think you're right. Uh, we're ready to work with you. So the following fall, there was a Montessori public school. So I think that the charter movement brings together some of the basic uh, principles of, the, of a democratic society, and I certainly include your kind of democracy as well as our kind of democracy. And that's why I think, at least in this country, it's been perceived not as a, an idea of the left or the right, but as an idea that can help, not certainly 
will solve, because nothing will solve, but will help um, reduce problems that we have in public education and will significantly increase the likelihood that many youngsters will attain their, their uh, possibilities. School choice is a contentious question, particularly on the political left, where such things as charter schools are viewed as a threat to equality and fairness in public education. Typical is a recent article in the Canadian Forum by Marie Dobbin, a writer and broadcaster and the former communications director of the BC Federation of Teachers. The article is sardonically titled, What Did We Earn in School Today? and it portrays charters as a halfway step to the complete privatization of public education, as well as a boon to the already privileged, an argument that's hard to square with Joe Nathan's evidence that in Minnesota, charters have catered more to disadvantaged groups. Some of the confusion depends on what kind of charter schools are being discussed. In the United States, education is essentially local which allows the variety and individuality of charter school types that Nathan has observed. In Murray Dobbin's article, most of his evidence is drawn from England, Australia, and New Zealand, where charter schools are part of uniform national systems, and this tends to force them into a more elite academic mold. Andy Hargreaves is a professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and the director of the Institute's International Centre for School Change. He has studied the effects of charter schools in England, Australia, and New Zealand, and he says that in those countries they have not expanded opportunities or equalized educational chances. The rhetoric of charter schools is that it, they can set up a different orientation to that that is dominant in the district uh, if they wish. So, for example, if you want a more alternative-style school with more uh, student-centred um, pedagogies, ways of teaching, if you want a school that focuses on environmental studies, a green school, that then you can establish such a school if, if there's a demonstrated need for it. So there's a kind of liberalism there that believes that you will get a thousand points of light, great diversity, uh, response to many different kinds of parental and community need. What tends to happen, though, in practice, is that these charter schools aren't created in a vacuum. If they're created in a, in a society that wasn't really a society at all, that was neutral, then that diversity would be a possibility. But, but if the rest of your public school system measures school performance by a set of standardised targets, if, if those targets look like, look as if they conform to a rather conventional curriculum of the kind that you and I might remember from our school days in terms of subject categories, subject content and so on, then parents get anxious. Uh, they want their kids to go to college. They want them to do well. They, they know what the criteria for competition are for those college places. And so most parents tend to choose conservatively, in fact, more than conservatively, in setting up their charter schools. So the result is, is that charter schools, oddly, begin to look very much like each other, rather than very different from one another. 
Uh, I came across uh, a group of principals in Australia recently who were all in a market system of uh, parental choice in secondary schools for their students. They were all putting large amounts of money into advertising to attract students. And all their ads appeared on the same day in the same newspaper. And they all looked at them. And the ads were completely like each other. They all said they were caring schools. They all said they set high standards and expectations. They all had a school uniform. They all had good relationships with parents. The rhetoric was that this market would create enormous diversity. The reality was that they were absolutely identical because the terms of competition were, were common for them all. The uniformity that Andy Hargreave sees among Australian charter schools, as opposed to the variety that Joe Nathan observes in the US, suggests that the effects of choice will vary according to the regime within which it is established. This seems to me an important principle to keep in mind if one wants to avoid comparing apples and oranges. If all schools are judged by short-term, standard measures, if education is seen as essentially a competition and academic achievement in the narrowest sense is deemed the only road to a decent career, it seems unlikely that any amount of choice will produce much real diversity. The benefits of choice must therefore be judged in context. Another objection to greater choice is that it will result in segregation of citizens according to religion, academic aptitude, or whatever other attribute might become the focus of a school community. Heather Jane Robertson is the Director of Professional Development for the Canadian Teachers Federation and the author of the recently published No More Teachers, No More Books, which warns of the threat of free enterprise in education. Greater choice, she says, will make individual schools less diverse and less challenging to the prejudices of the home. School is one of those places where you find out that just because you want things that way, it ain't necessarily going to happen that way, right? That you don't always come first, that sometimes you have to take your turn, that sometimes life is boring, that sometimes other people are obnoxious, and that you are not, um, by virtue of the fact that either you're the apple of your parents' eye or you're a particularly rich or gifted little kid, you may not be treated as uh, any more special than anyone else. Public education is that kind of interim stage between which in the family everyone is extraordinarily special and understandably family virtues and values are hallowed and unchallenged and everybody holds them, right? And you pride yourself in how much connection and agreement there is. At least that's how we perceive a good family. Well. If you sort of contrast that with the kind of skills you need to live successfully and with integrity and as a citizen in the larger world, there has to be some kind of transition period. So the school is this transition between the private world of the family and the public space. It is very hard for some to do the letting go that's required to accept that school necessarily confronts the student with people who don't think the way their parents do. 
or their brothers and sisters who come from different experiences where some people are more difficult or more fun than the people at home where there's a whole you know a whole wide range of things in which you have to learn to negotiate your space in a world which has difference on every front. Robertson contrasts this vision of the school as a diverse, demanding, democratic community with the vision of the school as a sheltered enclave that she thinks animates the demand for choice. The symbol for her of this threatened segregation of citizens is the charter school. Charter schools promote themselves as places where everyone agrees, where there is no debate, where we are all of like mind. I mean, in reality, we are also of like religion and of like social and economic class and so on. But it is, if you think of it that way, it's a perpetuation of the cocoon of the family that, that wraps around and doesn't challenge those fundamental assumptions. I believe that public education at its best never intends to rob kids of those assumptions and, and beliefs that started and are perpetuated within the family but it's absolutely obligated to respectfully challenge all of those ideologies, right? Without uh, discriminating for one set because they come from the left or the right or they are more or less religious or secular, but that all are put up for respectful and thoughtful examination. Not necessarily for the purpose of changing kids, but for opening kids to the possibilities of other ways of being and thinking. We absolutely must have that if we're going to live together in democracy. You see, charter schools are terrific preparation for living in a gated community. Heather Jane Robertson's final argument against school choice is that it will aggravate inequality. Where the others you have heard tonight see in the exercise of choice a natural parental right, a check against bureaucracy, a chance to experiment, and an acknowledgement of the philosophical paralysis of the common school, Robertson mainly sees the emergence of a free market in educational services, and she thinks that this market will inevitably operate against the interests of the weakest citizens. You see, it's not just who chooses and what happens to them in a system of choice. It's about all of those who are not chosen, you see, because the cruel irony of schools of choice is that everywhere they've got off the ground, it looks like parents are choosing, but very quickly, the schools start choosing the students. The power shifts. Schools find some kinds of students far more attractive than other kinds for all sorts of reasons. You know, the innate talents of the kids, the involvement of the parents. Uh, I mean, this is the way the market will work whether or not anyone intends it to. And I think that's a really important point here, that the market will select for those uh, clients and customers which are most attractive to it because that's the way the market works, not because the principal of that school or the board of directors uh, is necessarily setting out to ensure that no poor child ever attends that school. I mean, it's been documented over and over and over again that intent is not more powerful than the mechanism of the market. That is, uh, wishing that a school be egalitarian and inclusive once it begins to compete with other schools for the same kids, for the same dollars, 
will increasingly select in favor of certain kinds of kids and against others over and over again. Heather Jane Robertson thinks that school choice threatens to undermine democracy, disentitle the unlucky young who can't keep up in the new educational rat race, and produce a more unequal and more divided society. Joe Nathan, Adrian Guldemond, and Mark Holmes see in the same policy the possibility of an educational renaissance. To me, the main difference between the two views turns on the question of whether the common public school remains a vital, adaptable organ of democratic life, as Robertson believes, or whether this institution is now moribund and ought to give way to a community and family-based model of public education. The question runs deep, and a lot depends on the answer. On Ideas Tonight, you've heard part 12 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Our series continues next Monday night with a program about the trials and tribulations of Canadian universities. A schedule of the whole series is available on the CBC website. Go to www.radio.cbc.ca and look for ideas. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss. The associate producers were Liz Nodge and Kathleen Pemberton. Technical direction by David Field. You can get a printed transcript of the whole series for $25 or a set of audio tapes for $90, and those prices include taxes and handling. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers.